All right. Welcome, everybody, to our GM seminar on running sci-fi RPGs. And I'm going to mess with the title and say sci-fi slash space opera RPGs. Uh, my name is Katie, so I'm the moderator tonight. And I'm very excited to be joined by three panelists, uh, Glenn, Dwan, and Gavin. And I'll get you all to introduce yourselves in just a second. But um, I want to say that if you have questions for our panelists, head over to the GM Questions channel just above where you signed in for the audio. You can post questions there. You can also upvote questions that you really want to hear answers to. And if you just want to engage with each other during the uh, panel, feel free to go to the seminar chat uh, channel and just uh, chime in there. And uh, I guess I should say this is being recorded as a podcast to be released on our KW Gamers Network. All right, that's enough for me. Uh, let's hear from our panelists. So, Duan, I'm going to start with you. Just uh, introduce yourself to everyone and tell me a little bit about some of the sci-fi RPGs that you have uh, run or played in the past. Sure. So, hi, I'm Duan. Uh, I've been playing uh, role-playing role-playing games in one form or another for uh, maybe almost 30 years. Um, I currently, what I've mostly been playing with are games in the PBTA um, over, so um, games that are based off of a game called Apocalypse World. Um, the one that I'm currently running is The Veil, which is a cyberpunk uh, game. Uh, in the past, I've also played a lot of Star Wars, because I really enjoy Star Wars. Um, and uh, uh, other sci-fi games I've played, there's there's one called Atomic Robo. There's, there's a lot out there. Um, those are a few that I've been interested in. Yeah, I know you ran a game that I played, a one-shot in a kind of sci-fi world, but now I don't remember what that was. Maybe it was the Atomic game. Anyways, thank you. Uh, yeah. Gavin, what about you? Um, hey, so I'm Gavin. Uh, for anyone listening who I hasn't listened to one of one of these that I've done before, I've been gaming for a long time and uh, running RPGs for a long time. Like Dwan, I've really fallen into the uh, PBTA and uh, Forged in the Darkness games lately. Uh, by the way, uh, Katie, I think you may be thinking of the Eclipse Phase game that Dwan run, which is a really fun game uh, that looks at transhumanism. So basically what happens when we're not so tied down to our bodies or can shunt from uh, sort of, uh, you know, vessel to vessel kind of thing. It was exactly uh, it. I had a spider body. Yes, exactly. Uh, so in terms of the sci-fi games that I've been playing or running, I've I'm going to give a, first off, I'm going to give a plug to Scum and Villainy, uh, which is a Forged in the Darkness game, runs on the same system as Blades, uh, Blades in the Dark, and does an amazing job of emulating a Star Wars or Firefly feel. Also a big fan of Cyberpunk. Uh, I really like the sprawl for that, and I'm really enjoying Dwan's The Veil game. And the other genre of science fiction that I really, really enjoy that uh, I think is arguable, whether it's sci-fi or not, is post-apocalyptic. And I've been running post-apocalyptic games in a whole bunch of different uh, systems and genres all the way along. So any interest in that, please let me know. I'm happy to recommend. We'll definitely be getting to game recommendations later on. There's some uh, questions about that for sure. 
Uh, Glenn, what about you? Okay. Well, first, I'm going to be the descent. I don't play a play powered by the apocalypse at all. I've been eyeing a couple of the systems by it, but I've never tried it. And I hate scum and villainy in particular. Uh, I had a, I suspect I had a bad experience with the game, but it, you know, one bad experience and the entire system tends to feel a bit uh, tainted. But I am, at one point, at this point, I mostly run Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I'm setting up for a Star Wars saga game, uh, probably this fall at this point with my personal group. I have run Eclipse Phase, Shadowrun, Star Wars. Uh, I ran Esper Genesis, which is a D&D 5e um, mod or whatever for KW Gamers for a couple of sessions. Alpha was actually in one of the, I think, one of the games I ran for that. But the reason Katie invited me to this is actually my day job. I am a science fiction and fantasy author with, I think, 55 published novels. And that is my... Um, that is my oeuvre, so to speak. I write space opera. I write um, facts, military SF with a little bit of fantasy on the side. So that, I guess, is why Katie asked me to be on this panel. Oh, not the only reason, but you bring another dimension of expertise to the genre, given uh, it is your bread and butter. So that's amazing. Okay, so let's get into some of the questions from our audience. And I'm going to start uh, with this one. Thinking of how campaign settings in D&D, um, thinking of how, yes, set, okay, sorry, let me repeat that. Thinking of how campaign settings in D&D set base expectations for how the world operates. So, for example, Forgotten well, uh, Realms, Wilmot, I don't know, is that supposed to be Wildmount? I actually don't know what Wilmot is, except that it's like, you know, the next town over or whatever. Um, could be. Um, anyways, are there any basic frameworks that you leverage to set parameters on how your sci-fi world works? So why don't yeah, you start us off, Gavin, uh, thinking about how in D&D, you know, sets a lot of base expectations for how the world works. Do you have any basic frameworks that you import for sci-fi games? Um, yeah, so, and, and this is a really good question because one of the things, and I think we're going to run into it a lot tonight as we're speaking, is uh, just the amazing broadness of the sci-fi genre. Uh, all the different subgenres it encompasses, but just the sheer sort of span of tones and the types of stories that you're able to tell uh, really dwarfs what we tend to think of, of, of as fantasy. Um, so there's, there's definitely a few things. Uh, one of the things that I am shameless about is basically defining my, uh, my games by some sort of intellectual property. So it's something along the lines of it's like uh, the Wild West, but in space, which is pretty much how you get to Firefly or something like that. Um, but grabbing specific intellectual properties, like I said, Firefly or whatever else, will really help people understand where you're coming from. Uh, there's a few different things that I think if you're going to be running a sci-fi campaign, something that isn't published or if it isn't stated in the rules that you really do want to think of. We'll probably talk about a lot of them tonight, uh, but definitely uh, I, I think it's really important that you consider big questions like scarcity, tech level, 
mobility of player of the characters, that kind of thing, as you're building out that world, so you're ready to really communicate those well to the players. Uh, as a sci-fi GM, you're going to be doing a lot of explaining not only what your world looks like, but how it works in places that the uh, players aren't able to see. What about you, Glenn? For RPGs, I think, as you know, Dwayne was saying, it's such a big thing of you. Your session zero is going to be so critical because you so using an, an established IP to set the parameters for a game is it's almost the only way you can do it. Even if what you're doing is something completely unique, you still have to have those. They're called comps in publishing. Um, the comps, the works that the people coming to your story can be told you want to think of it like this because it's just such a broad expanse you have the expanse for example in there and you have star wars in there and you have firefly in there and all three of those are stories where you have somebody you have a group of people on a ship and yet star wars the expanse and firefly are all completely different types of story. And if you were writing a game based off of each of those, you wouldn't just be telling different stories. You'd almost probably, you'd most likely even be using different um, mechanical systems to represent them. So you really need to sit down with your players in advance and go, this is kind of your base cons, the base conceits of what we're doing, how things are working, and what's going to go forward. The flip side of that, of course, is that as you were saying, even no matter how much you lay out in, of the base feel in session zero, you're going to be either explaining things you've already decided or making th things up on the fly for so many bits and pieces of the setting as you go. And there are aspects that you need to understand as the GM, as a, as a storyteller in any context of the universe, the bits that underlie everything. And that's usually, for me, it's, your, how your faster than light travel works, if you're doing faster than light travel, how travel works in general, how far, how fast, mobility, um, is it the speed of plot, or is there a hard and fast set of rules for how fast you can get around the galaxy or the star system or whatever. And that, I tend to, to look at that first because to me, both in game and in story, um, how people get around informs economics, which informs culture, which informs economics, which informs why people get around, which informs how people get around, and it all feeds into itself. It's a world-building problem, and you don't need to do all of that world-building to tell a story as a GM or as an author or whatever, but you need to have some of the core points from which everything else flows really solid in your head. So... From what the both of you have said, I'm taking away that um, using an established uh, intellectual property to kind of give you a hook is helpful for you as the GM when you're crafting the world. It's helpful for the players because they have a sense of what they're getting into. And it might even feed into some of the mechanical choices or plot choices that you make right. uh, as a DM. Uh, Duan, do you... Uh, want to weigh in on how you set uh, expectations for how the world operates in your sci-fi games. So I think, um, first of all, I want to say I'm glad that Glenn is here because I, I also forgot that I'm also writing a, a scumability game and I, <laughs> I enjoy it. So at least we have a, a breadth of opinion rather not uh, instead of having everyone just all being, hey, I love scumability. But um, back to the actual question. Uh, I, I think that this is, 
kind of true of anything, right? I mean, because the, the, the question kind of presupposes that everyone is on the same page as what you're doing with fantasy. And what we're really saying is that we've just had this shared context for so long about the type of fantasy that D&D is. Um, and that's basically what we're talking about when we, we say fantasy in the context of role-playing a lot of times. Um, and that we already understand that, right? That um, we've got spell slots and wizards and monks and all of that stuff. There's a shared context there. And that's the same thing you have to do when you're establishing any game, right? And so... So if it's really easy when you've got a shared property because you're like, it's like Star Wars. Now we all have that shared understanding. Um, and Or if we're doing Firefly, we all have that shared understanding. If you're going to go from, from scratch and you're gonna, everyone's going to be like building that setting together, what you're doing is coming up with touch, touch points so that everyone has an understanding of this is the shared understanding of what we're doing in this game. Um, and I mean, basically, that's I'm reiterating what the others said, but that's, <laughs> that's the way I I see it. Great. Uh, no one's mentioned the most important uh, sci-fi IP yet, but I'm just going to let that hang there. <laughs> um, the next question. Um, a specific type of game <laughs> that I don't know lends itself well to tabletop, personally. Fair enough. Um, here's. Uh, another one that kind of gets us thinking about sci-fi RPGs as different from sword and sorcery ones. Aside from the obvious, which is the setting, what is the fundamental difference from both GM and player perspectives between a sci-fi RPG and other genres, especially swords and sorcery? And this time, uh, let's start with one. So I think there you've got um, the genre expectations are different. Um, especially depending on how how um, more you go towards the hard end, or um, you know, away from the more fantasy or or space opera, over the top space opera. Um, because I mean, uh, with something like Star Wars, you can kind of see if you look kind of you, you know you squint your eyes, you can be like, oh, they're kind of space wizards and they've got energy swords, but you can kind of kind of map it. Um, but when you go, you know, say, um, to take another example, like, uh, Star Trek or something like that, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of being roaming characters who roam around getting into like scraps, uh, because they're ind independent contractors is completely different because you're, you're part of a, um, you know, a, a pseudo military organization, you've got a ship, you're well, you're well, um, um, equipped, you have the ability to requisition anything you need, right? So, I mean, those those things are completely different, usually. Um, and, and, I mean, you could sort of have a game where, hey, we're going to do a D&D game where you guys are being funded by the king and um, have all that stuff, but um, the basic uh, structure is kind of different there. Um, and also, a, a lot of times, especially in D&D, and that kind of fantasy, a lot of the idea is like uh, uh, acquiring um, new stuff, like uh, more equipment or a new magic item that will help you to do better in the in you know on the next adventure. Whereas um, for a lot of games like this, it's like, well, no, I've, I've got a gun. I'm not going to get like uh, an even better gun, like a you know that that that. Um, 
thing only goes so far, right? You're not going to be like, well, first I started out with a gun plus one, and now I've ended with a gun plus twenty. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't usually follow um, from the from the fiction or in the genre. So, um, and we'll come back around to how items might work differently as well. Okay. Um, that's another question so like hang on to those good thoughts as well uh let's go to gavin next um what for you is the fundamental difference for the gm and the player between a sci-fi rpg and other genres yeah so the big difference for me is that when you're running a science fiction game your world almost by definition is going to be based um, on scientific principles. Whether you're outlining what those are or not, the, the underpinnings of the world are the science. And that's important because one thing that PCs and players and characters in a sci-fi game will expect, that they won't expect in a fantasy game or some other types of games, they will expect that they can know the unknowable. So they might not understand something that's happening in front of them, but they're absolutely going to um, expect that they can figure it out. Because so much power in the world is vested in technology, they're not going to accept a world where only certain people can you know, uh, build spaceships or that kind of thing. They'll understand that there are some people who do and some people who don't, but there should be that opportunity to understand and potentially make use of just about any phenomenon and technology they see. That's very different from a fantasy campaign where uh, characters and players will accept that some magic is just magic and unknowable or unrepeatable. So that's okay. to be the big difference. Big pillar in defining the genre, then, that reliance on science and technology. Uh, what and, about you, Glenn? Oh, go ahead, Gavin. Yeah, and, and really that players will expect to be able to pick up and use all mm -hmm. the tools you put in front of them. Okay, awesome. What about you, Glenn? That um, particular point, just on the basis of the um, the big dumb object, the hyper advanced alien tech that's beyond what humans or the party understands is kind of a almost archetypal trope of science fiction. But most, of, but you're right in that ninety nine percent of stuff they would expect to be able to identify, describe, and I mean rules. Part of it is, is you know there are there are always going to be rules and a certain higher expectation of consistency. I think fundamentally it comes down to the tropes of the genre and what and and so that becomes the problem because science fiction in this context consumes subsumes so many genres. So the expectations in a cyberpunk game are very different from the expectations of a D&D game, but they're also very different from the expectations of a Star Wars game, from the expectations of a scum and villainy game, from the expectations of a Star Trek game. If I was going to run Star Trek, one of the things I'd struggle with as a GM is that I would, as a player stepping into a Star Trek game, expect violence to very rarely be the answer. And I think that's just something that you'll, I would like to see more of in science fiction RPGs, but I don't think is actually there, is in a lot of science fiction, the answer is rarely to pick up a gun and get in a firefight. That's part of the solution, but it's rarely the final answer where in most RPGs of uh, any strike, combat still remains the primary method of combat. Okay, so that's more about the kind of interactions that the players... I mean, I guess, Gavin, both you and Glenn talked about the kinds of interactions players can expect to have um, and how they're relating to parts of the story. 
Um, there's definitely going to be time, everyone, don't worry to hear about like people's favorite subgenres, favorite like, kinds of sci-fi games to run. So don't worry, we will definitely leave time for that. Um, I want to talk a bit more about the mechanics of sci-fi games, though. Uh, and if we're thinking about um, Gavin's point that there's this centrality to science and technology, do any of you have suggestions for coming up with good techno babble on the fly? Do it a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, I write a million words of science fiction a year. I don't have trouble coming up with techno babble on the spot. So yours is just practice frequently, yeah, and uh, right. it will improve. Read, read a lot of science fiction. Read a lot of real world science. Know what's going to sound right. Okay, so that actually takes some some kind of prep, like read around, see what sounds good, and then just borrow from it, even if you don't really understand what it means. Yeah, very cool. Um, Duan, do you have a, a different answer to that? Ways to come up with good techno babble on the fly? No, not really. I mean, I think one thing you could do is maybe have a... I don't know if this is a way of coming up with good, but you could have like a, a chart that allows you to just like, you know, um, assemble a bunch of, of random googly gook and then throw them together and be like, oh, yeah, there I got something. Um, but I don't know if that's good or not. So it's not quite on the fly, but but ways of like piecing different things together so that you right. get different techno babble combinations uh, pretty easily. And, and, and actually, the question didn't specify that it had to be good techno battle, so I threw that in. Um, Gavin, what about you? Any suggestions uh, for techno battle? Yeah, in my traditionally sort of, um, you know, laziest possible way, I let the, piece, let the players come up with it. Uh, so instead of doing describe and roll, where, you know, I describe what's going on in the setting and they roll, or they describe what their character is doing and they, then they roll, we do roll and describe, which is, I know that, you know, somebody, uh, for example, Glenn's character is an engineer and they're trying to get the ship, you know, back on, back on course after it got smashed into by an asteroid. I'll just have Glenn roll. And then depending on the result of his roll, which we can both see if it's really good, great, if it's really bad, fine. I'll have Glinda uh, describe in, you know, whatever techno babble he wants to use, what that looks like when he, because he rolled well enough to succeed brilliantly or fail horribly. Uh, yeah, I just put it back on the PCs wherever I can, because they'll be more enamored with whatever they come up with than anything I'll come up with. So we'll have the photon graviton beam off the main deflector dish, deflect it off the nearby Jupiter and use the interface between that and the asteroid to redirect the ship back towards the way it's supposed to go. Because that's what you get when you roll a 20. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're listening to Voltaire. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so players, uh, go read a bunch of science, read a bunch of sci-fi, and read widely. And this will help you come up with your charts so you can come up with techno babble quickly. Um, okay. Here's um, another kind of mechanical question. Uh, let's talk about spaceships and spaceship battles. Uh, so, this question says, cyberpunk aside, I would think that every sci-fi player and the GM would want to take part in an epic asteroid-dodging, shields at 25%, ramming speed kind of battle. How do you do this? Make it something that all players can participate in and have loads of fun, e.g. not just for the ace pilots. And uh, let's start with Gavin this time. 
Yeah, this, I, I really like this question uh, because it is a major sticking point with a lot of sci-fi games. Uh, a lot of the times the place they fall down on, in my opinion, is space combat, uh, ship combat. I think this is something that benefits from a more narrative system. Uh, and I say that just because tracking objects in three-dimensional space, like any space combat would be, gets complicated no matter how you do it. It's going to slow things down in combat. Uh, hence why, uh, you know, another reason why I love narrative games. My big advice for space combat is you're going to probably have one of two situations. Either you're going to have one character who has insanely high piloting roles and should obviously be sitting in that pilot's chair, and why would anyone else even go near the steering wheel? Or you're going to have a situation where nobody has any piloting skills and it's actually just going to be a lot of fun for you. Assuming the former, what a lot of games make the mistake of doing is giving too many options to the pilot. So not only are they flying the ship, but they're firing the guns and they're looking at the sensors. And the reality is, is, you know, modern ships don't generally work like that uh, with one person with that much control over operations. So what you want to do is pilot flies the ship, but you want to make sure you're creating other challenges for the other characters. And it's got to be, you know, some of them can be firing the other guns. I always say give the pilot a little gun that goes, you know, shoots right in front of the ship, but give the real weapons to someone else. <laughs> uh, my other big thing is break things. Break things on the ship, break the people on the ship. Uh, a lot of times when you're running a sci-fi uh, game, it's easy to forget that there's a bunch of NPCs on the ship, if that's the case. Um, you know, m mangle them up a bit and give the medic in the group something to do or give the engineers something to do in fixing damage. You can give, like, the big tough goon something to do just in terms of running around the ship and lifting heavy things off of people or patching leaks, that kind of thing. Uh, you really want to focus less on the enemy shooting at the ship and more on the damage being done to the ship because you're going to get better storytelling opportunities out of that, I think. Awesome advice. Remember, it is not actually all about the pilots. Um, Duan, what about you? Any suggestions for spaceship battles? I think uh, Gavin has said a lot, right? Um, this is definitely one of those problems that happens uh, a lot in older design and also depending on, on the setting, right? Like, so if you've got a setting where it's like, yeah, there's a, the, the, the pilot is the guy who's piloting and he has to worry about just piloting and that's what you're doing in that scene, um, then it can get kind of monotonous. Um, but, you know, again, it makes a good point. You can have all these other things happening. A lot of games nowadays will recognize that and then say all right we've got rules for everyone else you know there's a role for an engineer to like do the, the fixing there's a role for a gunner to do the shooting right um and there's a role for the the medic to to patch people up who are dying um so a lot of games uh allow for that and that's basically what you want to do because you do want to engage everyone um that's come to play this game you don't want you know people sitting out for hours at a time if you can what about you, Glenn? How do you approach uh, spaceship battles? Uh, in RPGs, traditionally, I don't. Okay. I, because uh, I've had so many problems with them over the years trying to do it one way or another in the couple of games I've run where I very much have found exactly the problem that Dwayne and Gavin will be talking about, where it ends up being either the pilot is doing everything or everyone gets lost. Some people are getting lost or some people are getting bored. And I have seen what they've been talking about with the new newer systems where they kind of split up the roles and give different things that various characters can do. And I think that's a really good a really good idea, and I will probably experiment with that in the Star Wars game I'm running this year. But the last couple 
of times I've run sci-fi RPGs, I've actively avoided um, space combat for that exact reason. In terms of uh, my other hat, however, <laughs> um, the big thing I would actually suggest when you're setting up a space combat from a story perspective is it should very rarely just be straight up ship A and ship B a fight. Because in most sci-fi situations, it's pretty straightforward for ship A to avoid ship B or ship B to avoid ship A. And people aren't going, it's very rare you're going to see a situation where there is a sufficiently uncertain result that people are going to engage in the fight without what, without a reason. Your, your reason is rarely going to be the destruction of the enemy or your reason is the destruction of the enemy. The enemy is not going to cooperate with that. So there always, almost always should be, almost needs to be, a third factor in the fight. Um, a reason where, why the battle is taking place and, what's go- and an objective for the, for the players who are trying to achieve or prevent the other ship achieving above and beyond just straight up shooting down the other ship. It doesn't, there's, okay, so... Where we've got this hostile ship coming at us, that's great. They've got us outgunned three to one. Well, why are we sticking around? Oh, because if we don't slow them down, that evacuation transport with 50,000 innocents behind us is going to get blown up. All right, that gives us a reason to stick to this, but it also leaves you with the situation of the enemy ship isn't actually trying to necessarily destroy the players. They're trying to get past them. They're They're trying to achieve something else. And, and that the two ships are fighting is should almost always be what almost incidental to the actual objectives of what's going on. Other so that's see, one of the ways I see to avoid the thing of this ends up being because I think the just two ships flying at each other shooting at each other still doesn't necessarily get away from the the this is kind of boring. <laughs> So it seems like there's some kind of game mechanics issues to be aware about in spaceship battles, but a lot of it's really going to be the decisions that the GM is making about the story and leveraging those opportunities to pull people in or to to keep the story hook uh, really engaging. So unfortunately, I guess, Gavin, it does not just turn into a pew-pew kind of game, which um, we might enjoy more in video game fashion than tabletop RPG fashion. Um, I want to stick with some mechanical questions for a bit. Um, this one, and Juan, you alluded to this, so we'll start with you for this one. Um, magic items can be a core staple of swords and sorcery, like D&D and Pathfinder, and are arguably one of the things that players value most, as they will convey mechanical bonuses in the game that boost character potency. How does this translate into sci-fi? Must everyone get a lightsaber and um, an Archaeotech plasma rifle? I can't even read the Technobabble in the chat. I'm sorry. (laughs) A personal deflector shield. Um, Duan, let's start with you because you already alluded to items like this not being a driving factor. Yeah. I I mean, I think that what would generally happen is that uh, you usually have two types of uh, weapons. Um, that are going to be in a game. So you're going to have ones that are like really idiosyncratic, like a lightsaber, right? So this is something that is really important to that character. And then there's going to be some characters that are like, I'm a hand solo, I just have a have a blaster, 
Um, sure, it's a cool blaster, and um, you know, people who are into the lore can be like, I recognize that's the DL44 or whatever. But I mean, it's in the end, it's just a gun that goes pew pew, pew right? <laughs> um, and uh, we don't see a lot uh, in these games where, or at least in these genres. Um, characters going to a, one place to another and saying, hey, I just killed a dude and found a new lightsaber. This one's like better than my old one, right? Um, like, it's more about this is this is my look, this is um, uh, part of my personality. And so I think you could, especially in, in a lot of, um, so for example, in Cyberpunk, um, characters can have a lot of variety of weapons. Um, but they're not really going through and trying to change it. It's basically, a, you know, my character is the guy who uses the Nano Blade sword or whatever. That's that's his weapon. He's not going to be jumping around and carrying around like a ton of different weapons. I mean, unless unless that's part of your character. My, my character is the, the mercenary who uses who can use anything and is deadly with with you know um, household appliances. Um, so I feel like, uh, a, a lot of times characters are just going to be using gun, um, and, uh, they'll be, they might have different, um, abilities, right? So this one has, um, a scope, this one is armor piercing, this one is used for, um, it has incendiary rounds or something like that, but it's not quite the same as where, or at least it doesn't feel quite the same, I should say, uh, as, in a game where you like, I've got, um, you know, a plus one sword and I've got, uh, you know, these um, one shots, this one shot wand that has five charges, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm trying to find the next, the next thing that's better than the old one. Right. Um, you just, so would you, would you yeah. say that loot in general just doesn't play as much into the, the story arc or would you yeah. say that you're trying to create, loot broadly construed in different kinds of ways that aren't necessarily about um, character potency, but advancing the plot. Yeah, I think, I think generally maybe both. I think generally you um, like in the genre, um, I keep coming back to that, but you you don't really have as much of where people are going from um, weapon to weapon um, because Uh, you know, Han has his, his trusty blaster, right? Um, he uses that blaster until, you know, um, Darth Vader pulls it out of his hand and steals it, and then he has to go get a new one. But he's not like, well, now I've, 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 this trusty blaster served me well for today, but now I'm throwing it away and grabbing another one. And But, but at the same time, you want characters um, to have um, new capabilities and things that um, help um, display the actual setting, right? Um, so, uh, because usually these are high-tech settings that have, that they could have um, exotic weapons that are not just the same kind, right? So you might have um, you know, uh, that, that nano fil- filament whip or something like that. Um, and so everyone can kind of um, customize their characters in that way. But um, at the same time, you, you can say that this makes my character unique rather than um, making it broadly powerful and just trying to go up this ladder of power. What about, um, what about you, Glenn? How do you, ha- do you translate magic items into your sci-fi games in any kind of way? I found it interesting when I was looking at uh, Starfinder um, a while back because it actually has 
a progression of gear where you kept get you could continue to get better systems. And while on the one hand, I kind of was looking at that and going, well, that makes sense for rewarding players, but it also just doesn't necessarily feel right in a science fiction setting. As you're saying, we don't have um, you don't have the same thing of Arthur finds Excalibur halfway through the story, <laughs> made a significantly more powerful fighter by possession of the magic blade. There's no real equivalent trope in uh, science fiction. Like you have Luke, you know, has gets a new lightsaber in the original trilogy, but that's it's not a better lightsaber. It's right. just a new lightsaber. And I think that's, uh, you know, that your weapons are more tied into what your character does than your... The weapons themselves shouldn't be getting better as much as what your character can do with them should be getting better. It's like if you're in a Star Wars setting, I'm thinking specifically about Star Wars Saga Edition right now quite a bit because that's the one I'm working on and I campaign for. And it's like... The players don't start out with the best of everything, but if you're not doing anything particularly egregious or esoteric with the second with the other sources, which are almost impossible to find at this point, uh, you're basically going to have uh, by the third or fourth session, they'll probably have scraped together enough credits to get whatever special heavier armor they wanted, and that's really it. You get a couple of upgrades of special equipment, but most of, but by and large, by the time you're level three, level four in Star Wars Saga, I'm gonna say maybe level seven, just because that's the level at which the Jedi's can build their own lightsabers, which do give them a slight mechanical advantage. Um, by that point, you've got all of the gear you want. Loot in a strict um, dollars, uh, dollars and gear sense, just doesn't have as material an impact in your uh, in your space RPGs. I do note that Alpha's talking about Fallout and post-apocalyptic stuff in the chat, and I think that that is more... That comes up a bit more in that setting, but the post-apocalyptic setting, I think, to me, is a bit more about the scrounging and assembling better gear in general. Um, Cyberpunk, interestingly, in my experience, is not about upgrading the gears. It is about upgrading the person, um, putting in new... Instead of I getting a better gun, no, my gun is just gone. But the uh, the hand that shoots it, now that's the Mark III now, is the kind of upgrade I would expect to see in Cyberpunk. But by and large, you're not really looking to your gear in a, unless you're bringing in stuff like, I think someone was, you mentioned an Archaeotech Blaster, which is a, I believe a Warhammer 40,000 thing in the question. Unless you've got that sort of thing where you've got a, a side source of alien or precursor or that sort of thing, weaponry floating around the players to get their hands on, um, advancing isn't actually going to be based around gear. It should be based around your characters. And if your gear is changing, it should be changing to assist or enable a character growth rather than the weapon forcing a change in the character. Yeah, so again, more character focus, more skills focus, making sure the story is tight. Gavin, I'm going to skip you just because there's so many good questions for us to get to. But if you have something burning to say, weigh in because I'm going to ask you the next question first. I'm all um, good. You can jump to the next question. <laughs> uh, someone has a question about running a game in a universe based with mechs, large robots with pilots that possess personalities of the same size. Have any so, experience or recommendations um, or advice about such games? 
So unfortunately, I'm going to have to pass on this. This is one of my geek blind spots. I have watched none of the source material. I've run or played none of the games. I've just never been a mech guy. So uh, I'm going to kick it over to one of the other panelists. Yeah, Glenn, do you have any experience with uh, battle mechs? Uh, I've played Battletech um, and Mech Warrior, the video games. But honestly, again, this is... I'm... And with Gavin on this being one of my blind spots, I've not, I've only really touched it peripherally. And while I've poked at the idea of running um, mech style games, I never actually have. So unfortunately, I also kind of need to pass on the running the uh, any kind of mechs. I could speak to running Starfighter Squadrons, but <laughs> that's a slightly different set of tropes. Duan, do you have any experience with battle mechs? This might be a might need to give someone an action item to run a battle mech game. Oh, I really love mechs. <laughs> um, uh, so I think uh, the, the tropes that I would look at, um, if you're if specifically going for um, like the anime type, and uh, uh, again, we should I should um, pause and say that there's a bunch of different genres within the, the mech. Uh, you know, oeuvre or whatever, right? So you've got your super mechs and you've got your more realistic ones. You've got um, so stuff like Ava, Evangelion. Um, there's a lot of things uh, around, uh, you know, team um, coming to embody these these um, these mecha. Um, and then there's ones that are more, uh, we are actually in the military and things actually are kind of semi-realistic. Um, and so, so there are, there are different ways that you can come at it. And so, um, as with, with most of these things, you should probably have a good understanding of what your genre is, or at least, um, like have a game that supports those genre and those tropes, right? Because, um, hopefully, uh, the game allows you to do a lot of stuff outside of the, the cockpit because, for a lot of those games, you've got like, you've got again, you've got these big personalities, as as was mentioned in the um, the actual question. You've got these bigger personalities, and how they interact with each other um, is kind of important. So you want to make sure that that's supported in the game. One more uh, kind of mechanical question, and then we'll turn to particular subgenres, game recommendations. Um, capturing that feel of your game and carrying it on. So our last mechanical question that I have for us is um, coming back to this idea about how central scientific principles and technology are in um, sci-fi games, especially this question asks for hard sci-fi genres like The Expanse, which is highly rooted in realism and reasonable extrapolations of technology. There's arguably a built-in trap, trap is in uh, quote marks, tied to where player actions and GM adjudicated uh, bump up against real-life actual science and physics, which, in this person's opinion, defeats the point of an RPG, which is ultimately an exercise in fantasy. Oh, I love this question. It's so controversial. How do you escape this trap? Do you find that science becomes a trap that you get caught up in that uh, hinders the role play? Uh, let's start with Glenn this time. Without rules and limitations, we're running around the backyard, we're arguing, going, bang, you're dead. No, I'm not, you missed. 
And that's as true about the rules of physics when you're playing hard SF as it is about the rules of D&D when you're playing D&D. Without the structure and the rules, the fantasy becomes somewhat pointless. So operating inside those rules, operating inside that structure, operating inside the limits of the real world, and so to speak, I mean, when you're running sci-fi, you kind of sit down and go, no, we bre- here is where we're breaking the rules. If you're running harder sci-fi, you have your one or two or six specific ways you're breaking physics. And, but you set a set of rules, and by using those rules, that shapes the story, that shapes the shared fantasy. And if you're playing a hard SF game, you've accepted that as part of the structure when you're going in. And it shouldn't be impeding the role play. It should be guiding and enabling the role play. It's, well, I can't do that because that's not part, you know, I can't bounce a, gra- a photon graviton beam off the deflector dish because that's bullshit techno babble. But I could potentially, knowing what I know about physics, arrange a gravity slingshot use and, and get an additional acceleration to get the ship back in course that way. At least, you know, you change the answers depending on how strictly you're following the real laws of physics, but it doesn't erase the fantasy or undo the aspects of roleplay. It sets the strictures in the same way as picking a genre sets the strictures. That I am playing sci-fi says I have set picked these rules. If I'm playing D&D, I have picked X rules. If I if I want to play no rules, diceless, what I say, I am a god of the world and what I say goes, I'm pretty sure there's at least three RPGs for that. So you have to have buy-in from the group for this. But if you don't have buy-in from the group you're playing inside the laws of physics as we understand them, why are you playing a hard SF RPG in the first place? Going back to that, setting the tone and, uh, you know, making sure uh, players know what they're getting into. Uh, What about you, Gavin? And, you know, especially since you said for you, something that really distinguishes sci-fi games is that reliance on science and technology. Do you find that you ever get in a trap where you bump against real life, actual science and physics, which um, obstructs the role play in some way? So um, I would probably never run a truly hard SF game, because I think Glenn's absolutely right. Once you commit to that, you're committed to not just the rules of the game as written, but the rules of our universe as we understand them and how those two are going to interact. Um, I think, though, that what is more important to most players, not all, there are certainly some that uh, are going to drag their heels in this, but to most players, the importance about the technology and the science of the game is the consistency of it, as opposed to the correctness of it. Uh, They expect that, you know, if they can put X numbers into X computer on X day and have X results, that when they do the same thing, Y day, Y results occurs. I I think it's very important to hit those big technical questions in sci-fi. Usually things like faster than light travel, scarcity, uh, you know, does matter transportation or matter replication exist? It's not important so much that you explain exactly how the technique works, because presumably, unless there might be a couple of super geniuses on on listening to this, but most of us are going to be wrong if we try to explain scientifically how teleportation is going to work in the future. What's important is that you explain how it's used by average everyday people uh, to your players, and that you bear in mind that then your PCs are going to go beyond that. 
So if the rules are you can only transport somebody, uh, we'll go with like old uh, original Star Trek rules. You can only transport somebody from the transporter room to somewhere else or from somewhere else to the transporter room. The players are going to want to figure out site-to-site transport and, and to try to do it. So I always set my tech level sort of one stage below where I'm comfortable the campaign ending up on the assumption that the PCs are going to push it all forward anyway. The important thing is to say, here's how the rest of the universe uses this tech. And then when the PCs goes off, go off and take it in a different direction, you get them to explain why it works. Great. Duan. Yeah, I, I think that I kind of agree with Glenn. Um, I, I, it's, I don't really think it's a trap, um, so to speak, to say that um, hey, we've decided that we're going to play within these confines and that um, just not anything goes. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same as if someone comes into your D&D campaign and the first day says, I want to change this to a dragon. And you say, well, you can't do that yet. Like, and then, you know, they're not going to be like, oh, my, my illusions are totally broken. Right. They understand that, OK, well, maybe this this isn't the campaign for that. Or that's just something that I have to wait until I become a level 20 whatever. Right. And in the same um, idea, um, most people aren't going to be, um, you know, bumping against it saying, I, I only wish I could teleport right now because, uh, I mean, everyone has already bought, bought into the game that that's not the type of game you're playing. Um, I think what's more interesting in that case is um, the fact that sometimes when you're playing in a game that is... Uh, that is purporting to be like hard sci-fi that you can have a lot of people that kind of shut down because they're not sure okay well what is what is real right like what what is um a thing that is completely within our understanding that i can do um and so a lot of people kind of uh, shut down because of that and so that's that's i think a problem that you might want to try to solve or in a challenge and um like i can't think of a really good idea except for as the the GM or as a player, you can help like um, suggest things to a player and say, hey, this this might be a thing we can do, um, you know, so that so that people can keep can get restarted because they might just shut down and be like, oh, I'm supposed my character is supposed to be this um, theoretical physicist, but I don't know that much about physics. Um, and then they would just need someone to help them out there. Right. Um, so that's that's my thought on that. Yeah, so some good collaboration to get around uh, some of those challenges if they arise. Yeah. That's great. We got about 10 minutes left, and I want to talk a little bit about particular games or subgenres of sci-fi that really appeal to you as um, GMs. So I'm going to read a few questions at once and invite you all to kind of pick up on them as you will. Um, Gavin, I will cut you off if you talk too long about scum and villainy. Um, but... <laughs> Two of the broad questions was, um, with a galaxy of options to choose from, how do you focus your game to maintain a particular feel? Hello? So you've set I, the tone. Uh, lost the plot here. Oh, that's okay. I'm still asking the questions. Um, so I'm going to read a few questions and then um, invite you to talk about some specific things. So with a galaxy of options to choose from, how do you focus the game to maintain a particular feel? Um, and also, uh, is there a sci-fi subgenre or framework inspiration that you have found to be more fun to play than anything else? What is it and what about it makes it fun? We've also had two specific requests from one person to talk about scum and villainy and from another person to talk about Spelljammer, if um, anyone has um, experience with 
with that setting. So Gavin, I'll turn it over to you because I know you have a couple things to say about at least scum and villainy. Audio cut out, just as Katie said, I will cut Gavin off if. So I didn't actually hear what I'm going to be cut off for, but I would imagine it would be for going too long on this question. So Exactly. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we're fine. Uh, so yeah, scum and villainy, I will, I'll touch on that briefly here. Uh, by the way, I'm always happy to talk about any of these games off uh, panel with anyone who wants to know more about them. Uh, the, the thing I love most about Scum and Villainy is that it's basically taken major sort of um, sci-fi IPs like Star Wars and Firefly and it's just filed the numbers off. Um, the tricky thing about Scum and Villainy, as with other Blades in the Dark game, is it assumes that the GM is not really going to plan that much out ahead of time and that it's going to be a very collaborative process. One thing I will recommend with Scum and Villainy, and I've done this with the games I've run, it's worked well, uh, and I actually recommend this for most sci-fi games, start them in a dead-end sector. Uh, ideally one where there's only really one place of interest to go from it, and that gives you some time to build the immediate world before they jump in a ship and head off in any one of 20 directions. You're going to get there eventually, you're going to have to be ready to deal with it, but if you start them in that dead-end uh, sector with only one gate out or one jump path out or only one logical destination, it, it, it's going to make it easier for you to do some world building on a local level before you move past that. Um, and I can certainly talk more about Scum and Villainy if anyone is interested. Uh, in terms of recommendations for other games, I'm going to go very quickly here. Uh, for GMs who are going to run sci-fi, even if you're not going to run the system, I recommend checking out Stars Without Number. And that's because it's an OSR system with a ton of charts and uh, materials for sort of random planet, random system generation that you can use as inspiration, even if you're not going to run it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, for Cyberpunk, I like The Sprawl, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Very bare bones, but very true to the kind of original Gibsonian cyberpunk, uh, 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 cyberpunk feel. Uh, for post-apocalyptic, I like Glow in the Dark, which is a very brief expansion on the Blades in the Dark system. I ran it once, uh, had a ton of fun because it was basically... Uh, the characters assaulting a, a, um, a post-apocalyptic Santa's Village theme park that had been uh, overrun by bandits. Uh, last but not least, I'm also going to plug Paranoia for satirical sci-fi fun. This is probably my favorite sci-fi or future set game of all time, where you play clones living under the sometimes benevolent, sometimes tyrannical rule of... Uh, the uh, alpha computer uh, who sees communists. Traitor, please terminate yourself. Yes, <laughs> that is paranoia, and it is probably my favorite game in of my thirty years of gaming right now. Uh, it's one I keep coming back to. I recommend anybody check it out. Cut you off there, and also affirm that your paranoia game is one of the highlights of my past two years that I played with you. So that was great. Um, okay. Uh, what about you, Glenn? Any recommendations, any subgenres that particularly grab you and why? Um, I live and breathe the uh, adventure SF, space opera, military SF subgenres, so I'm not exactly an unbiased source. I have written some over almost 50 novels in that particular intersection of genres. So, 
Um, in terms of RPGs, I honestly haven't run enough science fiction stuff in recent years to really want to pick a particular favorite. Like, there's a few settings and stuff that I truly adore. Like, I adore the Shadowrun setting, but I'm not a very big fan of the Shadowrun Shadow system. So I'm kind of stuck out there. Uh, and, well, I... I think that the Star Wars Saga edition is potentially one of the best refined iterations of the 20 rules. It is a bit out of date and really hard to get your hands on at this point. So I don't really have any recommendations in terms of systems. Certainly in terms of genre, my bread and butter is the Okay, awesome. And I put a link to your website in the seminar chat so people can go read more about your uh, space adventure, military uh, sci-fi stuff. Uh, what about you, Dwight? Oh. Gap's recommendation for Stars Without Number just as a uh, background information book. I've never run it, but I have read the book, and it is some really interesting um, put-together stuff around building a setting. Awesome. And maybe that would go to the question that we got about like how to focus your game to maintain a particular feel. I don't know if, if that would be a good one to kind of give inspiration in that way. Um, okay, Duan, what about you? My case in, in sci-fi run very wide, so it's really hard to pick just one thing um, uh, or, or even a couple, right? Uh, and so so like, like um, Gavin, I, I welcome people to ask me off panel and I can give you more uh, things, but right off the top of my head, I did run um, some Eclipse phase, and I really enjoyed that. Like, um, it had some interesting uh, questions to ask about transhumanism and, um, you know, embodiment. Like, what can you do with your body? Who are you? Are you your body? Are you your mind? Um, you know, what what happens if you can if we can digitize a person's mind and do all the things with that? Um, so a lot of questions that are asked in um, Altered Car Carbon, if you're interested in that. Um, I, I love the cyber cyberpunk genre, and, you know, I'm happy to play in pretty much any one of those. Um, I've, I've run The Veil. I've run uh, The Sprawl. I've run, um, you know, I, uh, I've run one one session of Shadowrun, so I wouldn't call myself a Shadowrun game side, <laughs> but... Um, I'm familiar with it. Um, I've run games with like mechs in them. I've run games that are apocalypse, which I mean can be somewhat sci-fi, but yeah, it does feel like it's a totally separate genre for the most part. So um, there's just there's a lot out there, and I um, I implore you to go explore. All right, might be hiring you to run a uh, run a game on transhumanism the next time I teach uh, philosophy of technology. That would be fun. <laughs> All right. um, we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, Glenn, Gavin, Duan, thank you. This has been fantastic. We can keep up the discussion in the chat. I do want to announce our next seminar, which is going to be on July 8th, and it is going to be supercharging your role play and narrative description. Skillful narrative and role playing description can make the difference between a good game and a great game. So learn how to supercharge yours. And if you go to the um, coming up next, I believe is what it's called channel, uh, you can sign up, uh, find the meetup link there. Uh, so yeah, thanks again so much. This has been wonderful for me. I have 
three, I think, games that I've backed that are sci-fi related that are coming out soon. Um, a space adventure and um, a game of fir- a story game of first contact with an alien, um, an alien race. So I'm definitely going to be thinking about uh, this panel as I start prepping for those games. Um, yeah, thanks everyone for coming. I wish you all a good night and we'll um, be in virtual space with you on July 8th. Live long and prosper.